Hi, I'm Stacey Shumaker-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned podcast. Lionel O'Hayan says, the most important thing you'll ever do is design your own path. He has been doing just that since graduating from Ontario's University of Waterloo, trading his native Toronto for New York, where he founded iCrave in 2002. From hospitals to airports, iCrave takes a transformative approach to projects, often integrating technology to push the boundaries of hospitality. Now, after 20 years of award-winning work, iCrave integrated with Futures Intelligence Group and Skilled Creative to create Journey, a futurescaping company to imagine and execute the next generation of hospitality. This episode of Hospitality Designs What I've Learned is brought to you by Duracin. Forget what you know about the solid surface industry. Duracin is a new generation company forging a new path crafted around what creative people want and how they work. Duracin is here to give your ideas the support they deserve without the fuss. Whether it's as simple as a sink or your wildest design idea, we've got you covered. We're the creatives here to help you create. Sample our surfaces free today at Duracin.com. Hi, I'm here with Lionel. Lionel, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? Good, Stacey. How are you? Good. So good to see you. All right. So we always start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Toronto. Um, and I left Toronto in 1995, 96, actually. And we made my way to New York. What were you like as a kid? Were you creative? Did you have an early love of design or any kind of inkling to what you would become? Yeah, I was, you probably heard the story before, Stacey. Like, I was that kid who, if you bumped into my third grade teacher, they'd say, did Lionel become an architect? You know what I mean? It was like that kid who was always like, my parents were surprised when I said architecture. When I was six years old, and it was always something that I thought I was going to do. The interesting thing is the first time, the first time I thought I might not be an architect is when I graduated architecture school. Why is that? And my... My, my, you know, my, my thesis advisors were like, you really should consider doing film, right? Your work is very theatrical. You're very storytelling kind of person. Like, you know, my work, my thesis, a lot of my thesis work I did in film. And, um, and so I really was like, I also went to a co-op school. So I had worked in offices around the world. By the time I graduated architecture school, I'd worked in offices you know, like six times for four to eight months. And at that time, this is 1994, I never, ever worked for an architect who was happy. Like I literally, every job I had, I was like, wow, these guys are miserable. Um, and it affected me. You know, you're like, do you really want to go into this profession? Which, you know, architecture school is kind of miserable. And then these people are just like working too hard, complaining about not making enough money, not doing the creative work they really wanted to do. It was just like this constant kind of like, that was like the, you know, the late 80s into the early 90s of the world of architecture, right? So you graduate and you're kind of like, do I really want to do that? Okay, going back real quick. So did you work, who did you work with um, during the co-oping? Was there anyone that you learned a lot from or, you know, any great memory of that? I worked for, um, there's two work terms that are, the two work terms that were the most formative were um, one for an architect, 
a very talented architect in Montreal named Dan Hanganu, um, who kind of like a Ricardo Bofield kind of sensibility about architecture. We were working in Old City. Montreal was in a lot of transition. He gave me a lot of responsibility. Uh, there was a retrospect, uh, retrospective about his life, and I became his kind of like his muse to get all these projects that he always wanted to get done done so that he could sort of talk about his life outside of his work exactly, but pa passion projects. And I worked on a lot of like competitions and I learned a lot there. The second one, which is interesting because it speaks a lot about where I am today, it was a work term I did in Paris for an architect called uh, Martin Montrec, who was a professor um, at the uh, La Villette School of Architecture as well. And I was working with him on writing a book and, and um, understanding the emotional reaction we have to space. So we had this little model machine with this like long kind of tube with a little tiny camera on the end of it. This is 1992. And I would like create sections of spaces and have this little plaster steam model of the person and move light around, right? And then we would sort of analyze the psychological impact of being in like a narrow, tall space or a flat kind of wide space. And like, that was all the kind of thinking um, that he was basing this book around. There's a book called L'Espace Vivant, which was like this predecessor to his book. And anyway, so it's, I was thinking about it just the other day, actually, before I was, uh, before I went to speak at HD, um, because I was kind of, I'm kind of tracking, I think I'm getting old, like I'm tracking back on my life these days and trying to understand like the parts that made me become who I am today. And I think like that time in the studio, a lot of time by myself, building these little maquettes and it's kind of like putting one person or five people or a whole group of people and how light and space react. I think it's, you could easily trace that back to where my brain is today and the work that I've been doing for the last 20 years. Yeah. And going even further back, so at six, you said you wanted to be an architect. Was there anything, family or people around you that introduced you to architecture or, you know, something that sparked that? Was it through travel or, you know, um, another experience? So I think it had to do with uh, my family lived in, in Spain and south of Spain. <clears throat> um, and I would go there for the summers and my uncle had like, a, he was a developer. So he'd have these amazing models you know, with like all these like residential developments and little cars and trees and everybody would be, you know, trying to get to the beach. And I'd just be like, I want to go to Monica's office kind of thing. You know what I mean? I just want to like see these models and get into them. You know, it was probably like eye level with the table where the models were at. I can't remember that. So I, I know that that had a strong, it's a strong memory I have. And I just, I've always kind of been fascinated. You know, I was like the, the you know, cliche Legos and Meccano and all the kind of toys and blocks and stuff like that. So those are interesting. Um, okay. So you get out of architecture school and you're like, I don't know if I want to be an architect. Maybe I should go and film. What's next? What do you do then? Quite, quite frankly, the day I graduated architecture school, my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Oh, he died subsequently like six weeks later. And it was a really uh, intense time. I literally finished my thesis after all that work in architecture school. And this career I thought I was going for for my whole life. And my father passed away. And I was like, no, I'm going to do film. And then honestly, it was like, I was like, like, he would just be beside himself if I just dumped it after all this. Give it some time. Try and figure it out. 
And then I decided that, you know, and I say this to young people all the time, like the most important thing you learn to design is your own path, right? Like the path, you can't assume that you're going to, the path is laid out for you. You just got to take your steps along that kind of yellow brick road. And I said, well, what, what did I learn? What did I see? And I was like, these, like, these guys are just not happy. Like the most important thing I got out of co-op school was I understood like the pace and the stress and the energy and what the reality of working in architecture will have. And most people who do it are doing because that's what you do. It's not, it's not, that's who you are, right? And so I was like, well, what do you need to do? And I was like, you want, I, was, I was always fascinated with this idea of the master builder, right? Like where architecture started. Like the guy who like had the vision was the construction manager, built everything, you know, did everything. And slowly architecture has become more specialized and more and more into details and less about the actual physical making of things. And so I said, what I think I really want to do is become a master builder, right? Which is like, we, we do all design, but we do all build. And Stacey, when you and I met, I built everything I designed, right? Remember, I yep. just like I crave and O&D. We just were like, we're here. How much money do you have? We'll design it, we'll build it. For me, that was like, I started that in Toronto. We were still there with my, with my family um, before I moved to New York. And I was just like, you got to build it because if you don't build it, then you, you can't protect the design. And ultimately, what you're trying to do is protect design. So you have to not get priced out or, or value engineered out of your own ideas. And that's when I started. Um, that's when I, uh, well, there's some steps in between there working for a Russian oligarch and whatnot, but and the Benino family in New York City. But aside from that, <laughs> okay. that's, a, that's a story for another day. Wait, what did you do? <laughs> Can't get away that well, easy. I, well, well, I came to New York because a very close friend of mine from Toronto started dating a, a girl who's from New York. And then they got engaged, and he's like, you got to get down here. And it turns out that uh, he got engaged to, you know, this, this, this gentleman who, who, you know, essentially was an oligarch. And... Um, he had all these properties and building this house up in Great Neck and all sorts of very elaborate, elaborate, extravagant projects. And and Rob, who uh, was my friend, who I was doing a nightclub for in Canada, was like, "You got to get down. You got to get down here. You know, I, I'm 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 dealing with all this real estate, and I need you to help me like figure out design construction." I came to New York. Obviously, I'd been going through a lot. My family, my dad, da da da, and I just completely fell in love with New York, right? And I was like, I'm done. I was like, I'm not going back to Paris. I'm not going here. I'm not going there. Toronto's over for me. I'm going to New York. And um, and we were working on, you know, all these incredible projects. Um, we had our own gilding, gilding shops and water jet machines and stone manufacturers and furniture manufacturers and every kind of specialized kind of bespoke part of what you can imagine an extravagant mansion might need to get built. We had all that in the house and I was running design and construction for him. I was probably 27, 28 years old. So the details of who I was working for uh, all sort of started to come together. And um, I got pretty nervous and I was just like, I think I got to get out of it. I I don't know what, what comes next. And, um, and that's when I kind of just was like, I got to just go do something else. And 
that led me to quickly working for a, a design built firm and then learning to lay the land in New York City. I did that for about a year and a half. And then I started iCrave. I, uh, I, I was in a one bedroom apartment. I took my bed and threw it into the living room, bought a couple doors and made a desk, an L-shaped desk in the bedroom. And I just said, you got to just do your own thing. And there's a million parts to that story, which are kind of interesting. But I was just like, you need to get your shit together, remember who you are, and go do what you need to do. And not let other people like manufacture your reputation or what you believe. And if you can't do that, pack your shit up and go home to Toronto. And quite frankly, as soon as I did that, I just got into my stream. Like I just got into my power kind of thing, you know? And I think that that was like a super important moment for me. You know, I was wearing a tie to work. Can you imagine me wearing a tie to work? No, not at all. <laughs> so your first office, it was in the meatpacking before the meatpacking was the meatpacking in New York. Talk to me about that. And then also the projects that you designed nearby, like you helped kind of create many of the, you know, nightclubs and restaurants around, around that neighborhood. We were young and we were inside this kind of like post 9-11 um, nightclub proliferation, if you will. Like, I think what happened was, you know, for a lot of people who don't know, during Giuliani's term as mayor, there was this old law about dancing, like you cabaret licenses, and you were not allowed to dance. And every bar and every lounge, you know, would say, no dancing, you'd see signs. And if you're sitting at your table talking to some people and you start like kind of shaking your shoulders, someone would come and tap you on the shoulder and actually say, no dancing. It's like footloose in New York City, right? Like you could not dance. Bizarre. After 9-11, like that just was like gone. No one cared. Nobody wanted to hear about it. There's bigger fish to fry. And all of a sudden, all these clubs started opening up. And we, we the first club we did was um, actually in the Hamptons. It was called Cabana. And then uh, we did Chaos, and then we did Pangea, and then we did Bilo, and then we did Flow. And well, we just were this huge run of stuff um, that led us into the meatpacking district. And then we, well, we were actually building on 20, on 19th Street before, and then we moved into the meatpacking district where uh, I partnered on, on a project called One, One Little West 12, uh, which became the One Group, which we launched the whole STK kind of celebration, Bagatelle, 10 June, and all that stuff. So we were, we were both designers and shareholders right that was a big part of my model going through this like we should own stake in some of the you know the ip that we're creating for our clients and so from there once we got into the meat pack and we moved into the space above lotus and we just were you know really doing a lot of projects in that neighborhood which is pretty exciting do you think nightclub owners came to you because you were able to do the entire design build like why do you think you that was your entry in pretty much to hospitality. It's a few things. Number one, my thesis ultimately, which was about the impact of our virtual world on our real world, was manifest through a nightclub entertainment complex. So I was in nightclub. Um, I was 
going to nightclubs a lot, right? And I became friends with a lot of the people who were building these things and owned these things. And um, it just was like, you know, we did, Crowbar was a big part of it, right? Crowbar was a huge club that opened up. There was a guy named Rob who I described earlier who got married to this woman who was in the scene and was like, you know, you need to call Lionel. And he was actually a great promoter of iCrave when we got started. And then, yeah, we were like, what? We'll design it, we'll build it, we'll get it done for you quickly. So I think that was a big piece of the puzzle, yeah. Yeah. What was it like in those early days? Like, how many people did you have working with you? You know, were you guys just. Well, it was me and Siobhan, right? Like, Siobhan was the first person I called and I said, hey, I'm building this thing and you got to come on board and all that. Because you, uh, you two went to school together? We went to school together. Um, and she's amazing. And um, we, you know, we had like three or four people. Jesse was working on something early on. And, you know, we we're probably like six, seven, eight people. Plus, I had a construction department. We had literally like, like, you know, Mutt and Jeff, you know, the all, you know, like the design guys, the construction guys, Dylan screaming about this, that, the other. Everything was solved in-house. A lot of the work was done 11 by 17 or by going on a site and pointing to something and changing it right there. It was very, very hands-on and it was all in. It was like you're all in, right? And and um, we were working super late. We were working on weekends. We were going out together. It was a real kind of like startup, if you will. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and we were really challenging ourselves to come up with big ideas. You know, we were challenging materials and looking at different industries. Materials was a big thing early on for me, like fiberglasses in the boating industry and trying to figure out, you know, the force that we did in, in Crowbar. You know, we actually went and found masks and cast these masks and big egg-shaped egg kind of environments and stuff like that. So it was really, you know, it was really a lot about, like, because we owned the construction, we were able to like find solutions, right? And we had a budget. Like we were like, we're gonna go solve for this. Um, so we learned a ton. We really learned a ton. We learned a ton about how to build. We learned a ton about building codes. We learned a ton about the process. And so we were very nimble and, and very capable to get people to where they wanted to go. And from there, we really realized like, as soon as I became a partner so early on, like it was all about like, does it work? Does it look cool? Cool. Does it work? Are we making money? Like, does this thing require 10 more staff to operate? You know, all these questions that, you know, think about out of the gate as a designer, we were thinking about right away. How much are you going to cost to do this? What's the process to do this type of order versus that? How long is it going to push the schedule? So we became like super kind of like all encompassing very early on, which has right. helped me a lot. And also how the team worked you know, to serve. And I, I remember one of our first conversations, you know, you've always been not only the experience, but the flow and how the room, you know, is, is set. So that way, you know, the, the, the staff, the waitress and wait, waiters and the bartenders could really do their job efficiently too. Yeah. And, and that, that plays into us doing hospitals now. Like how do we think through the problem? Right? Like that's the problem. The problem set is, is, is uh, for me and for what we do at iCray, you know, you've heard me say this before, like we're not interior designers. Now we do interior design and we've got really talented interior designers, but we're not, we're like searching beyond those kind of like parameters. And I think that's a good thing. And I think it's a message what, in, the, in the conversation I had at HD is really about where are we going? Uh, what, is this, what is this profession leading us to? 
to deliver on what clients expect from us, right? And, you know, there's a whole range of possibilities of what that is, but that conversation is what we need to be having right now as, a, as, a, as an industry. What's your answer to it? Well, I started a new company, Stacey, mm. um, and um, I'm excited about it. Uh, we brought in some, some great partners to raise a bunch of capital. We're assembling a bunch of teams together, different expertise. And, you know, we're going to launch a journey. You're hearing it here first because we're probably not going to post this interview before we actually launch. Um, but we're, our company is called Journey. Um, I brought in this, the former CEO from Frog. Um, who I think you've met with me, Andy Zimmerman, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and also Craig Ayers, who's the CEO over there. So we brought in a really high-level, scaling kind of professionals who understand the design industry and then understand it beyond just physical stuff. They do digital, do systems, strategy. And my vision is that really, like, the, the answer for the client's that are coming to me and asking me, what do I do? Like, what is the experience I'm looking for? How do I sort of reach people in a new way? It, it's impossible for me to look them in the eye with a straight face and not answer the digital part of that question. Right. It just doesn't feel like, you, the more you avoid it, the more you push yourself to sort of like the outside of the real answer, right? Because the real answer is there's a physical solution, there's a digital solution, and quite frankly, there's a metaverse solution, right? There's this kind of web 3.0 part of the answer that clients need to just understand. Now, if we're in the banking sector and hospitality or if we're in healthcare, it's the same thing. And so for me, this evolution, this building of this new journey company is really about understanding what does it look like to have the company? You know, I've had Iker for 20 years, a so 20 year anniversary. So like, where do we go now, right? And how do we answer the call today? So I'm super Super excited about the team that we're building. We have voice AI technology. We have a full metaverse suite of products. You know, I think you know Kathy Hackles, my chief metaverse officer, and um, and we're building teams in full digital, full immersive experience, so that you really can like look at across the whole span of what a brand engagement is with your customers, with your clients, whatever industry we're in, and answer it in a complete sense. You know what I mean? That's amazing. And are you having to teach clients? Are they coming to you for it, or is it both? Right now, right now we're teaching clients a lot. Um, not every project spans across physical, digital, meta kind of thing. Um, but more and more, I think that's the solution set, right? And I think that uh, you know, I really think that AI is going to have a tremendous negative impact on the interior design business. Right? I think like you're seeing it already. Like you can input, you can input a floor plan, and you can get 35 solutions from an AI, you know, uh, solution-based software that will then even tell you like where to buy it, how much it costs, and when it can get shipped to your house, and who can install it for you. And you just like package all those pieces together. You're seeing it in residential. You're certainly seeing it in office space, right? where it's like, it's super easy to just get these solutions all kind of like logistically solved for you. And so ask questions, like, well, what do we do? What is it that we actually do when we do it well? I mean, there's a lot to be said about designing beautiful things. And I have a lot of respect for people who just focus on that. 
and do it really, really well. But for us, it's the search is like more than that. We want to, we're like impact, you know, that. like I, I want to try something different. I want to like do something I haven't done. And I want to really like impact business solution with design thinking. You know, like I want to know that we did something, you know, we're doing a sphere in Vegas for MSG and it's like a whole new type of entertainment being unpacked, right? Of us being able to participate in that solution and find out what that means and how design impacts that experience, I think is really important. And now I'm like, okay, well, what do I mean by design? What are, what are the parts? And so I'm really excited about how these different parts are going to come together, change the process, and, and in some ways protect us from this idea that there'll be less work out there because AI will take 50% of the work or 20% and one day 90% of the work. It won't because as long as you're innovating and you're creating new ideas, right. that's the journey kind of mission, right? Like you're, you're, you're stepping beyond just the kind of like, you know, here's a set of drawings, go build it. You're, you're really impacting what the experience is about. How much has this been a learning curve for you? I mean, I know you've always been interested in tech and I had, you know, researching and, you know, thinking this way, but I mean, to really master AI and metaverse and all the other things that are coming your way. I mean, what have you done to kind of get yourself to the level where you, you know, can go out there and do it well? I think that's the challenge yeah. for a lot of people, right? Like it's all out there, but like, how do you become, you know? Well, you got Yeah, no, that's a good question. And, you know, people in the studio will tell you that I can't work the photocopier. So what the hell am I talking about, <laughs> about technology? But it's not about, it's not about, you know, what, one of the great things about thinking about the future is you can just make shit up, right? Because who knows? But to actually to actually execute and prove it, which I think we've done. Like we've said, hey, what if we introduce this technology here? How would that change the outcomes? Blah, blah, blah. You know, we, we're doing that. We're doing that daily. And I think that I think that you have to be, you know, you have to be open-minded about where we're going and 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 you have to just look backwards a little bit in order to see forwards. And there's a resistance. You know, there's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of resistance in our industry about things like the metaverse. Well, guess what? We've been doing 3D renderings for years. And that's, you know, for what, for lack of a better term, the metaverse, right? It's this immersive way to look at things. And, you know, I think what I've been doing a lot is, you're right, I've been doing a lot of learning. I'm doing a lot of listening. And I've been participating a lot and in inviting people into our projects to, you know, help us see it from their point of view. Love it. And going, you know, you said that you were celebrating 20 years. This is how you're evolving the company. Looking back, I mean, did you ever think in 2002 that your company would become what it is today? I'm, I'm relatively hard on myself. So part of me says I didn't execute as far as I thought I'd execute in 20 years, right? Um it's, 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 I look at the body of work that we've done. It's completely mind boggling how many projects we've executed. Right. It just, sometimes it just, I'm, I can't believe it. You know, I just like, how did we do all this work? And, um, and sometimes I'm like, why are we still doing this kind of work? We shouldn't be doing this work anymore. Right. Like we shouldn't be doing this work, but you know, there's, there is, there's,
There is a sort of proverb that no architect should ever do the same project more than three times. First time you try it, second time you you understand your point of view, third time you master it, and don't ever do a bar ever again, right? Well, there's part of me that's like, I don't have anything left to say about a bar, personally, but there's 75 people who do, right? That's what we're doing. We're giving younger people opportunities to talk through these ideas. And right now we're challenging what a bar is. We're challenging everything right now. Right, because there's like this whole two-year interlude of shit that we've been going through has like allowed us the license to just like what, what, what conventions need to exist anymore, which ones can we reinvent? So that's super exciting. You know, I think that that's really really cool. What kind of conversations have you had along those lines? Like, how are you pushing that idea? Like, for in the sphere, for in- instance, like how are you re-examining what? lounges and FMB means for a massive entertainment venue, you know, that has to morph into many things throughout the week? It's, you know, it's an ongoing question. And, and the first question, and this is a case in point, is like, how will technology be used in the sphere, right? Or any other project, because that's going to, that's going to, um, that's going to largely kind of inform like, well, what is the experience? Like, why would you ever wait in line? Like, what is that even about, right? And how do you kind of engage in these spaces in the way that allow you to explore the building in a, in a way that you, you wouldn't otherwise? Like if you're in a stadium, you're not exploring it through the, the food offering or the experience offering somewhere else. Whereas today you can, if you just lever, if you just leverage technology that already exists, right? And so if that's not a if that's not an arrow in my quiver and I'm trying to design something new, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not reasonable, right? It's not reasonable for me to tell my client, Oh, I'm going to make something amazing for you and not be like, here's the technology overlays and allow this design to unpack in a completely new way. Yeah. You know, do you find that the technology exists pretty well now? Are you still trying going out there trying to search for new ideas? There's, we're way behind the curve on what's already there. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good news for everybody in this in this world of what we do. There's a ton of solution out there that already exists. And people are like, "Oh, why do you have to wait for your check in the restaurant?" I'm like, you, you don't. But you need to bake that solution in when you hire your designer at the very beginning, so that they know that that's not going to happen, and therefore I can rethink the whole sequence of events of when you arrive. Right, like you don't need ninety percent of the history of like the order of operations of what we're used to don't need to exist anymore. Right. Yeah. But, but I think it is a fine line. I'm curious your thought. You know, there is still like sitting down at a bar, especially like a quote unquote mixology bar, and having that interaction, right, and having that conversation with the bartender about what you want to drink or what you want to eat with, you know. With this yeah. So how do you balance those kind of those experiences with the technology? So to your point, like the question is, what is the value proposition of the experience? Right. right. If, if you said, oh, we're, we've got the greatest technology. I'm going to get you in and out of dinner in New York City in 35 minutes. People are going to be like, yeah, no, I don't want that. That's not what I want. I want to enjoy my dinner. Right. Like I don't want to be rushed out of here. Right. Right. So you didn't solve for anything. And bars... Bars are approaches where you can, you know, 
find a place to lean on and look around the room and see what's going on. That's what you do. Like you find that you walk into a restaurant or a bar by yourself or a nightclub by yourself, you need a perch. We design that way. We're like, okay, you just got to where's the perch? You know, where are the, where are the wallflowers hanging out? And like, what do you do? So there's purpose to bars that give, you know, social context to individual people and to small groups. And we think, we think through what the state, you know, what all the different, you know, use cases are, you know? girl getting picked up at a bar you know like is that is that what you want here maybe you do maybe you don't if you do it's one thing if you don't something different right you want people to have like solitude in places like airports like how many single seat opportunities do we create in airports because we go well yeah a lot of people travel alone right and so we're thinking about those things in you know the airport and tech how technology what we do with the ipads in airports right i mean it's just like We've learned so much, so many things that we've learned that we didn't expect even. And where the airports are going now, I think it's going to be even way more exciting. Well, it was such a simple idea, right? You sit down and you touch an iPad and food comes to you, you know, like, but no one had done that before. So Yeah, and kudos to Rick, right, at OTG, who leaned in and invested across it and made it happen. I'm that's just- an important that's an important piece that I think people need to understand. Like you need to build a trust with your client. Like you need to literally find the client. Like we've been frustrated on so many projects, like Loma Lights and stuff that we really wanted to change the world. And we got stymied by politics and city BS and whatnot, and changing of mayors and stuff, where we really leaned in to do something really, really big. Um, and we learned a lot through those projects, like cloud forest on top of Hudson Yards and whatnot. And even small projects, like you can't, you can't force your will on innovation in what we do, right? You can't force your will on, on big ideas and you can't swim them upstream. Like you can't, you can't have an innovative idea that a, a facilities manager then sells to a CEO. If you're going to make big ideas work, they have to be with a partner who's the decision maker. And that person has to be like vested in the success of that big idea. And quite frankly, it's got to be their idea. And if it's your idea, make it seem like it's theirs because that's the only way it gets done. Right. And you've had a lot of repeat clients. I mean, I think that's also part of your success is that like OTG management, you mentioned, you know, obviously STK started as a partnership. Um, do you think it is that trust that back and forth or what do you think makes you and your team a good partner that, you know, Tau group now with the sphere? I mean, there's so many people that you've done work with for your two decades. What is that secret to a successful collaboration in your eyes? I think it's, I think it's got to do with passion. I think it's got to do with um, leaning in and taking responsibility for what you believe to be true and being an honest broker, like just being telling a client when you think they're wrong without being rude, you know, um, and just being like, look, this is what, you know, we, this is what we got hired for. This is my job. This is what I'm representing for you. And here's where we're going. Now we, you know, like when we were doing the airports with Rick, you know, Rick and I, we had a lot of trust between us. We were, and we had, we were like, we were really building a lot of stuff all at once. 
right? And the, the, the growth of OT, OTG was, was just prolific. And we won a lot of competitions together. And we continued to push the envelope. And, you know, there were times when he's like, stop. And I was like, no, your competitors are coming after you. And this is what you hired me for. And this is where we're going. So by the time they figured out what we did two years ago and got it built, we're already moving on and doing other things and innovating and whatnot. And I think that that's, in, you know, from my point of view, you know, I think for, for me to, you know, with, with Sushi Sama, we just did Dubai. You guys are going to see an incredible, incredible project in Doha. We've got three or four other amazing projects lined up behind it. You have a client who's fascinated with architecture, fascinated with art, right? And he wants something different. He wants something that he hasn't done before. He wants something new. That's where, that's our sweet spot, right? It's like, let's go do it different. Let's go invent it, you know? And I think that that's, I'm really proud of that. And, um, and I think that that's who we are, right? We want to try something that we haven't tried before. We're doing hospitals, you know? It's like, how the hell do we get to hospitals? But they you brought know, you in because you think differently. So yeah, and they literally they literally read an article and said these guys do do architecture where people are anxious. And like, what's more anxious than the hospital, right? So I think that that's like, and we I, that was another time when I was like, wow, I just didn't get, I didn't catch this. Like they're they're seeing something in us that we're not seeing. Like I would never have thought, hey, why don't we reach out to the hospital and show them our portfolio? Right. You know, I mean, even getting that call, you know, you had to have somebody who believed in something different, right? To your point, you had to have somebody that, you know, was thinking the same way you were. Um, yeah, shout out, shout out to Susan Healy, MSK. Yeah. She saw it and she pushed for it. And, and she, quite frankly, put herself on the line. And thank God it worked out. And I remember you said that one of the years at HD, that, you know, you designed with passion, right? You designed for the patient. Can you talk a little bit about that and why? Sure. Why hospitals didn't do that before, or you know, or how you're rethinking what how hospitals were. Not that they don't. I don't get in trouble. But. No, look. I think look, hospital and hospitality somehow had they diverged at some point. Those two words meant something different. But hospice, hospital, hospitality. I mean, they're just. There was like, we just felt like this, that a hospital could be so much more, right? Like, and that ultimately the challenge we brought ourselves to is, can we make a hospital that's an active participant in your cure? The hospital itself is part of you getting better, right? That was a very tall order. They were like, let's, let's try that. Like, let's go for that goal. And we started to really look at what it meant to be sick and be in a hospital. I, you know, for me to get called from a cancer facility, I lost my father to cancer. It was like a big deal. It was like a big validation for me. It was a big moment for me to like, okay, there's a purpose to what you do beyond what you do. Um, and so for us, it was like, okay, like what makes people better if they're sick? And we learned that people who are inspired have better outcomes. And so we said, can we create a building that inspires people, right? And how do you do that? How do you sort of like think through the, the, the problem set and people are coming back here. This is the, the facility, the last facility we did for MSK was a infusion and radiation and chemo facility. So people were coming back over and over again for months at a time, maybe even years. 
But I realized, well, that sounds a lot like enrolling into like a program in college. Like you're like here over and over and over again. And for us, we just were like, how do we inspire people? How do we create opportunities for learning? How do we create opportunities for engagement? How do we create opportunities for people to have choice? Would we create a, a world where people actually came early, left late? You know, we're like, you can't, you can't really, uh, a lot of people are in, are in a situation where they can't really shop New York City. Can we bring New York City to them, right? Does a gift shop have to have like, you know, stupid balloons and stuff? I mean, you're a cancer patient, but you might be heading to a dinner party. What can I pick up on my way out here? Because I'm spending so much time here. All this kind of thinking that sort of like, just gave control back to people and just allowed people the opportunity to invent and create and commune and make choices. And we use technology to unlock all that, right? We use RTLS technology would mean you don't, you and me and whoever else don't have to sit by a clinic door because we're waiting for our name to be called out. You can go anywhere in this 18 story building and we'll find you, right? Because the technology RTLS, which is an RFID system, RTLS means real-time location service. means I'll find you on the third floor in the yogurt class as opposed to it being a waiting room. So we eviscerated the whole waiting. The waiting was gone. And then we can program it with stuff. You're like, well, what kind of stuff? Well, there's a lot of stuff that exists. Well, where? Like you said, technology. You know, like we can, we can, we can implement all sorts of programming in here, right? And we can give everybody a whole notch down on the anxiety level, right? And in doing that, you're like changing the paradigm for what it means to be there. Me, if I'm a loved one going with somebody else, are we thoughtful enough to give you a place to work? Because you know what? I have to bring my loved one to the hospital every two days. I still have a job. My kids have homework to do. All these other parts of life that still need to happen. Just think about those little moments in time and like all these little parts. And that's like this kind of like, empowering through understanding and that's like kind of that's where we are in our work it's like we can empower people by understanding their needs providing for it and creating a context where great things can happen it was such a simple idea about rethinking waiting right like how many doctor's appointments do we go to now still and we still have to wait i mean just and i you know being in a hospital and just being surrounded by things that don't feel good. Right. And I think one thing this pandemic has taught us is how much buildings and the things around you affect how you feel. Right. And so it's, again, just like such a simple idea that you guys just, you know, rethought. 100%. Let's go back to my work term in Paris in 1992, where I was just using a little plaster steam model over man and examining the impact of space on your emotions. Like that's, that starts to trace back to the work that we're doing today. It really does. I'm like, oh yeah, we're still thinking through these problems, Yeah, you know, and it's cool. What does hospitality mean to you now after all these years? Um, I think the quality of the relationships that human beings are having today and will and more concern for me because I have three small children tomorrow right? Like, like, what is it? What is my role in creating a world where human dialogue is paramount, where the ability for people to be together in the real world is the fundamental practice of humanity, right? So that we can help each other and that we can create a world that 
um, that is that is positive and full of light. And so for me, you know, like that was one of the big things when I was like, yeah, let's do this. Let's go build journey because who's going to build a metaverse if not me? Yeah. Right. Uh, and you and everybody who might listen to a podcast like this who cares about hospitality, who cares about design. That world is our world. It's not this pretend thing that's a fad that's going to happen. You know, it's like the, the in its simplest form, it's immersive internet. And immersive internet could be very powerful in a positive way. And it can be devastating, devastating place if we don't put our hands around it. So hospitality is about human connections. It's about, you know, I grew up in a Moroccan household. We're all about hospitality. You know, we are like known for receiving people and, you know, extravagant dinner parties and amazing celebrations and color and laughter and food and sound. And, and I'm lucky that I had that. In, I had that. I grew up in a house that was about um, receiving people and about entertaining and whatnot. Um, and I, I, I don't think it's, I think design is a very important piece of it, but design in and of itself from the physical point of view is not, is not where hospitality lives. It's one of the supporting cast members, right? And that's why the experience part is so critical. And I tell clients sometimes, I can gild this place in gold for you. I've probably said this a thousand times, right? But if you don't know how to receive guests, you don't, you can't do this. You're not going to be good at it. It's not like you've made a bunch of money at working at the bank and now you want to open a restaurant. It's going to be awesome kind of thing. It's like, it's like you see the people who toil in the kitchen, in the front of the house, and like actually run these things. That's the hospitality piece of it, right? That's really the front and center kind of like interaction piece. So I think hospitality is a really important piece of the puzzle of healing the world. And, you know, I get scared when I see everything getting you know, Pinterest boarded to death and it's this copycat world and Instagram telling you this story about this other perfect world out there. And it's like these life is perfect in a snapshot. Um, it really, it really, it really keeps me up at night. It really concerns me about like where we're going. So that's what, uh, a real reason why I think like being part of um, this future, future scaping, as we like to call it a journey, um, understanding like what the whole world of the panoramic kind of view of, of like the world we're building um, is really important that we get involved. Us, and I'm speaking to whoever's listening, um, in this design world, put our hands around it. Don't be afraid of it. Let's go grab it and design it and build it. Be the ones who inform how interactions happen in this world. Because if you see, if you go on there right now, if you go see the things that are being experimented right now, yeah, some's good, but a lot of it's like each could be a lot better. For sure. All right. In the sake of time, we're going to do a quick rapid round. Okay. You ready? <laughs> yeah. You seem so excited. Okay. Oh, yeah. This is my general disposition. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, favorite project you've ever done? I crave. Oh, okay. Project you're most looking forward to designing? Besides Journey. That I'm not working on right now. Or that you are working on. Um, TSX Sphere. Um, What's TSX? TSX is an incredible project we're working on in Times Square. Oh. Uh, where we will be building uh, both the physical, incredible entertainment complex in the heart of Times Square. 
and at the same time developing the the uh, metaverse version of, of what that experience might be like. Very cool. What project have you never designed that you still want to design? The Olympic Games. How do you stay inspired? Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a great question lately. Uh, I would say uh, my kids uh, travel and um, and exploring. Travel bucket list place. I really, I got a trip to Mongolia this summer and I'm trying to figure out how to make it work. Um, Mongolia. Amazing. One thing uh, that people might not know about you. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty spiritual. Uh, I'm pretty into understanding the, uh, the, the Jewish liturgy um, and my origins and what that's all about. What has been one of your most memorable hospitality experiences, a travel or a stay or? You know, I grew up in the world of Guy Le Liberté <clears throat> and his, like, and, and his inventions and creations. And I think it had a big impact on me. Uh, he would throw these insane parties after Formula One in Montreal. Um, and I think the kind of level of commitment that he would do, like whether we're in, I once went to Brazil with him and the crew and or you know to his parties in Montreal or anywhere like in the visa or whatever. He has this kind of like real clear understanding of like hospitality and how he how he kind of creates these worlds, these immersive worlds for you to sort of like become an active participant, to actually become the spectacle and not just sit back and be a spectator in his world. So for sure Guy's parties in his world were like a big part of it. Um, and certainly Burning Man. There's no question about that. Have you been able, as you've expanded over the years, how have you kept the office culture you started, you know, that was all about collaboration and digging in? Have you been able to keep that or how have you been able to kind of evolve your company culture? Because I know it's very strong. We have luckily have many people who have been there for more than a decade and who are, who are the culture. Um, and quite frankly, like more, you know, like I've passed the reins on to other people to allow that to continue to evolve. And those people, you know, it's, it, the studio is like school. That's what we built. It's like, you cannot, we still do crit day on Wednesdays and we try our best to like give everybody an opportunity to be the voice. And we still believe that the best idea wins. It's really not my ideas. You know what I mean? What I've created, I hope, is a platform for creatives to tell their own story you know I mean? and have their own voice in it. And I'm not, I'm super excited when I see something I didn't expect. Now, lately, I've been really, I've found that I was yearning to be much more part of the, the process. Like maybe over the years, I got too far away from it. And I, designed, I think at some point, I was like, shit, I haven't designed anything in a long time. So I'm excited about 53. It's the new restaurant at the at the new David Geffen Wing of the MoMA, uh, which will be opening this summer. It's my project. Um, like was all over it, which I'm sure everyone in the studio is like, uh, keep them off the projects. <laughs> you know, so there's a, yeah, there's a few projects right now that I really leaned into. The Sphere, um, this project, 53. Um, but the Moore building in Miami and, um, and TSX, which are like, I'm kind of like back in the studio all over. And maybe it's because the studio here in Miami is small, like it was when we started. And I'm like, let me design. I want to design. 
But the team, the team is just really talented and really committed and really a tremendous, tremendous like alumni of super talented people, which stay tuned this fall. We're going to put together a big ass party, uh, invite everybody. So it'll be really, really great. Can't wait. I don't think I've been to one of your parties since the roller skating one. Oh, it's such a good one, right? That's a, good one. That's a talent that people might not know. You're a very good roller skater. I'm a good roller skater. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right well i hate to end the conversation but we always end the podcast with the title of the podcast so what has been your greatest lesson or lessons learned along the way you know, I, I, I said something earlier which i tell people a lot which is you have to design your own path um it's more true today than ever like, there is no we have no idea what this profession looks like tomorrow and um I think that you have to be mindful as a creative about where you want to go and the things that you want to understand and learn and be part of that. And, and, and designing your own path is also just about, you gotta, like your integrity is critical. Like if you want to have staying power, if you want to be in this and you want to make impact. And I think that's what a lot of people want. They want, they want to create impact. They want to see a difference because they, they worked on stuff and, integrity and being a good person and doing the right thing and not leaving you know a trail of like bad relationships behind you is super important it's just this is a very relationship based business and it's not just a business it's a community right and you want to you want to have good relations you want to have like a great track record and you want to have your integrity check and you should you know like that's a big thing for us it's a big thing for me. Like, check your integrity. Like, are you doing what you want to do? Are you being a bad guy about it? And yeah, like, I just think like you should, you should design your own path and you should check your wake. Love it. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with me for the last hour or so. Um, appreciate you taking the time. It was so good to catch up and congrats. I'm super excited for this next chapter for you. And I can't believe it's been 20 years. I think we've known each other now for 18 of those. 20. Yeah, probably 18 of those. Yeah. All right. Well, I love you and thank you, you for being you. a leader in our industry. And um, keep it going. You're up. Thanks, you too. This episode of Hospitality Designs What I've Learned was brought to you by Duracent. You can find full episodes and transcripts and images at hospitalitydesign.com.